The episode you're about to hear is sponsored by the Journal of Experimental Biology. This journal is published by the Company of Biologists, a nonprofit that has been supporting and inspiring the biological community since 1925. JEB publishes research about the form and function of organisms at all levels of biological organization. For this episode, we partnered with Journal of Experimental Biology to highlight a scientist who appeared in the special issue of their journal, published in February. To find out more about the Journal of Experimental Biology, visit jeb.biologists.org. That's jeb.biologists.org. In 2016, an extreme marine heat wave occurred off the eastern coast of Australia, waters that are home to the Great Barrier Reef, the largest reef in the world. The reef extends over 14 degrees of latitude and contains a vast range of habitats and species. According to the GBR Marine Park Authority, it's one of the most complex natural ecosystems on the planet. The heat wave led to dramatic change on the reef. Hundreds of miles of what was once a brilliant display of color and life became a graveyard filled with bone-white coral skeletons. Since then, ocean conditions have only worsened. Coral reefs are key to healthy oceans, and it's important for us to understand why they are declining. But corals are also complex, which makes them hard to understand, but it also provides some hope for resilience as ocean conditions change. First off, corals are not single organisms. They are holobionts, which are complex systems of multiple interacting species. Major players in the coral holobiont are single-celled algae, which provide the rest of the holobiont with the products of photosynthesis. In turn, the coral animal, a cnidarian relative of jellyfish, provides the algae with a safe and stable environment and access to organic molecules. Carbon dioxide in particular, which the algae use to carry out photosynthesis. Recently, scientists have started to call the symbiosis a holobiont because it involves far more than the two most obvious partners, algae and animals. It also includes many, many species of bacteria and other microbes that live on and in coral, many of which turn out to play critical roles in coral health and metabolism. Often in response to stress, corals expel their algae. This process is called bleaching because the corals lose their color. And bleached corals get no more energy income from photosynthesis, which can eventually kill them. In the last few decades, two kinds of ocean stressors have become much more common. Heat waves and increased acidification. The 2016 heat wave caused bleaching in over 90% of the Great Barrier Reef. So far, few of these reefs have shown signs of recovery. Dr. Holly Putnam, a professor at the University of Rhode Island, has proposed a creative but controversial approach to mitigating coral die-offs, human-assisted evolution. Holly and her colleagues are now growing corals in lab conditions and selecting for those that can best cope with experimental adversity. The idea is that once corals are adapted to the extreme conditions in the lab, they should have a better chance to endure stressors when they're put back into the wild. It really came about as because of the urgency of the state of the reefs, right? Like the urgency of the, of the climate change problem, the urgency coming from the threats and degradation of reefs that we're seeing worldwide, even in places that they're not, you know, closely connected to humans in throughout the Indo-Pacific and in isolated places, right? So the idea is basically how do we harness the biological toolkit that these corals have in a, in a natural way to facilitate acclimatization and adaptation. Holly's lab is currently focusing on the genetic and epigenetic mechanisms that affect how corals respond to environmental change. In her recent JEB paper, Holly says we need more collaborative and cross-scale approaches to studying and managing coral holobionts. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. Holly, 
Charlie, just thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's great to have you on. Um, we're looking forward to talking about a number of topics. Uh, we want to start just by focusing on this this recent paper of yours in Journal of Experimental Biology and their special issue that was just published at the end of February um, about the sort of perils and prospects for the world's corals in an ocean that's that's changing. I think all of our listeners know that the oceans are changing, but maybe can you just give us a brief overview of sort of what, what's happening with temperatures and acidity and like overall, what are the effects on corals? Yeah, I mean, I think corals are really now being recognized as the canary in the coal mine um, for a lot of marine systems. And they're under sort of this double whammy threat of both um, increases in temperature, sea surface temperature and ocean acidification. So essentially we have increasing greenhouse gases, uh, primarily CO2 in the atmosphere, the CO2 these increasing greenhouse gases are driving increases in atmospheric temperature that's translated to increases in sea surface temperature and even more probably critically for corals that's being um, seen as increases in marine heat waves and marine heat waves are really driving the breakdown of the symbiosis in coral reefs so coral reefs are essentially the ecosystem engineers um, or reef building corals are the ecosystem engineers of the entire ecosystem and they are a symbiosis between a variety of organisms but primarily the the cnidarian host and single-celled dinoflagellates that live inside the coral cells, uh, photosynthesize and pass carbon products to the host that, that provides this um, high amount of energy that that allows them to calcify in these low nutrient conditions. And so, but that that symbiosis is fragile, right? And so, primarily, we're seeing that symbiosis disrupted due to increased temperatures that that result in bleaching because the symbiont has excess energy, right, from from high temperatures and the sun when it's going, undergoing photosynthesis that generates reactive oxygen species. And those reactive oxygen species are essentially like internal poisons that are damaging the cells. They're sort of dis- distasteful to the corals. And... Yep. Exactly. And, and so the, 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 do the corals kick them out or do the symbionts decide to go? An ongoing question and debate in the field, right? I think there's there's evidence for multiple pathways of breakdown. Um, and so it's unclear of how much is expulsion or apoptosis or necrosis. There's multiple pathways um, for that to occur. Um, but basically, yeah, that breakdown occurs where there's a loss of the symbiont cells, either through expulsion um, or these other mechanisms. And then you lose basically the energy from that. You lose, you're, you're starving. So, so that's the, the first stressor of concern that we're seeing really hugely impacting corals. We've had multiple mass bleaching events. We've had now back-to-back bleaching events in the Great Barrier Reef, back-to-back bleaching events in Hawaii and other places. So is it, is it sort of shifts in overall mean temperature that are the problem, or is it sort of very, very short-term or medium-term heat waves? I think you used the word heat waves. So, so is that the problem, or is it the mean shifts? Um, I mean, I think it's the, I think it's both. And we're, we've got a paper in review talking about this, right? I think it's both. It's the integration of these signals together. But when we really see it coming to a head is during the heat wave events. So we have chronic background of background changes of increasing temperature that are changing the base physiology of that organism um, and probably having long, longer term selective pressures. And then we have these strong um, pulse events as well, right through the heat waves. And so it's both, but the heat waves, we see it. Um, and then we also have, again, this chronic pressure of um, declining pH or ocean acidification. So again, that CO2 in the atmosphere is being absorbed by surface waters, and then that's shifting the carbonate um, chemistry of the surface waters to an increase in hydrogen ion concentration and a decline in pH. And that's particularly problematic because it's shifting that um, carbonate ion capacity as well, and that and we need ca- carbonate for calcium carbonate formation, right? And corals and other calcifying organisms are, are made of that calcium carbonate. So it makes it harder for them to lay down their their 
carbonate exoskeletons, right? And is it eroding the stuff that's already there? Yeah, I mean, it depends on on the mechanism, the calcification. So it seems to be eroding things like uh, maybe crustose coralline algaes and sort of these reef cements and these unconsolidated sediments that are carbonate sediments. Um, But if you have a, a tissue overlying your calcifying space, it's not necessarily... Um, primarily dissolving. It's just making it ener- more energetically costly to do that calcification and and for acid-base um, homeostasis, essentially. So there's just a greater energetic demand overall. But we don't see, I would say right now, we don't see ocean acidification as the primary stressor driving an overall decline in reefs in the same way we do um, increased temperature and mass bleaching. But when we get mass bleaching, then these denuded skeletons, basically, when the coral dies, they are then more susceptible to dissolution and bioerosion and ocean acidification effects. I'm intrigued. You know, the corals are, are, as I understand it, very difficult to work on. And in so much of the rest of biology, we like to use model organisms, which, you know, is not always my favorite thing. So we're not going to dwell on that too much. But with the challenges of doing things with certain corals, do we know anything? Have there been models that have been proposed to sort of make more tractable this, what is it about heat that's leading to the dysbiosis? I mean, how are people pursuing that experimentally? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a push for this model systems or model systems approaches in coral biology as well. I would say probably the... The emerging models are Aptasia, um, a tropical anemone, um, and that's symbiotic and aposymbiotic. You can keep it in both conditions. You can keep it, you know, in the lab. Um, you can turn over generations relatively quickly, um, and you can do a lot of the the symbiosis-related sort of bleaching and metabolomics and, and omics techniques um, to really dig into mechanisms in that particular model. So that's been a really good model for our understanding of of symbiotic uptake and maintenance and translocation and exchange. Um, and then there's also growing model in um, Cassiopeia, the um, upside-down jellyfish, um, for symbiosis as well. And then there's... Um, sort of the lab rat uh, that's been tested a lot and thought about as a model, which is Pocillopera damacornis, Pocillopera acuta, the cauliflower coral. And then also there's a growing model in Estrangia, which is, yay, Rhode Island. It's it's local to Rhode Island. It's a temperate coral. We have it right off right off the coast here. Um, the genome is now sequenced. It's probably the second or th- in the top three quality of genomes that we have for corals, a chromosome level assembly. Um, and it's, it's facultatively symbiotic. So it has symbionts. It doesn't have symbionts. It'll grow without both and it calcifies. So that's the step up from Aptasia in terms of getting more and more close to a, a reef building tropical coral. And then I'm and then we have a variety of other of other everybody's favorite right which which they would sort of go for as a model but as we build up the resources then we can sort of get to asking questions in a model system approach um i think and that's probably more important is building the capacity in that way rather than identifying a single model species at the organismal level among those models is there consistency in whether it's necrosis or apoptosis or expulsion that heat is causing or is this sort of a little bit of everything or different depending on the species. I think a coral is not a coral is not a coral, right? Like I think that they I mean they're we they're holobionts, right? They're they're a combination, as I said, a combination of a coral host with single cell dinoflagellates living inside the cells and they also are in symbiosis um, to some extent um, more or less with a variety of bacteria, archaea, fungi, endolithic algae living in the skeletons. 
Um, and then sort of macro symbionts that are like living in close association crabs that live directly on them, fish that swim over them and pee on them, right? So there's this like, there's the close symbiosis of the holobiont, then there's the symbiome over that. And so this, this, this holobiont or meta-organism perspective really precludes in some ways us being able to generalize, generalize across a lot of different corals and say the same things. But we're seeing groups of, of corals sort of emerging um, for a variety of different traits that they have that probably contribute to their environmental tolerance. Well, that is duh, daunting. I mean, we yes. <laughs> when it comes to corals, one of the things, the first things that comes to mind is diversity, right? And then that diversity is usually, as I was taught in early school, you know, it's the apparent things to your eyes. You start to use a sequencer and a microscope and you say, oh my goodness, there's substantially more diversity there. Um, but yes, it is the case that these are incredibly diverse systems. And yes, these are classic and iconic for the symbioses that, you know, that are involved in, in the, the life of a coral. Are they, are they truly exceptional though? You know, the microbiome revolution is all the rage now. So, I mean, is, is this diversity, this daunting, terrifying diversity at so many levels, something that we all have to confront? Back to my original question, you know, if there's, we, we kind of would like to have some generality in science so we can have it, right? And if you have staggering diversity, how in the world do you ever get tractability and, you know, paradigms? Yeah, I mean, so essentially, like, where, what are the features that allow us to, to make generalities? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'll answer that. I'll, I'll try to address this in a couple of ways. One, one is that I think we we probably as as in other fields have gone back and forth on this diversity. What is diversity and how much diversity is there? Right. So at the early days, we thought there's one one algal symbiont, uh, one symbiodinium, and and they all look like basically green brown circles and have chloroplasts and look very similar. Right. And then we sort of swung all the way over to the other side of the spectrum when we started initial amplicon sequencing and said there's hundreds of thousands of different types of symbionts and then swung back again saying okay this isn't the best marker because it has all this intergenomic variation and when we look at this in sort of a higher view basically right where we're looking more at patterns and profiles of things that are co-occurring in many many places okay we get we shrink these down to profiles that are probably representative of these intergenomic variants so our diversity is is less than we thought and probably there's more likely one or a few dominant or co-dominant symbionts in 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 symbiosis um and so i think that's happening to some extent right now with the bacteria and the viruses. We're still at those early days of learning what's there. Where we've identified sort of a core um, bacterial microbiome. Um, and so I think from sort of our growing understanding in each of those, each of those areas, some properties are emerging, some, some traits are emerging. For example, corals with like thicker tissues um, tend to have higher energy energy reserves and tend to be more resilient to bleaching because they have that reserve, right? When they're when they're starving from not getting incoming um, carbon. Holobionts that potentially ha are in symbiosis with a certain um, all the taxonomy was, taxonomy was just re revised for all of Symbiodinium, so now it's the family Symbiodiniaceae. Oh and, yeah, <laughs> don't you hate that? <laughs> right, the genus um, Duristinium, which used to be clade D, is more thermally tolerant. So 
then you know there's the emerging sort of understanding that when you're you tend to be more bleaching resistant when you're in symbiosis with this clay D or duristinium than when you're in symbiosis with something else. But then maybe duristinium translocates less than than cladocopium, clade C, and so there are these sort of features we can pick out, but then some coral goes and, you know, associates with both and has thick t- tissues in its plating form and thin <laughs> tissues in its branching form and, and right, doesn't behave. So I do think there are, there are approaches, trait-based approaches and things that we can do to understand where these generalities are and then to test these, you know, as we go through these major bleaching events or when we do our stressor tests, mesocosm work um, in, 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 in the lab. So I think there are, there are ways forward. And as we learn more, we will be able to integrate these data better. And I think that's one, that's one area where I think we really need to go is quantitative integration of the holobiont. And that's where I think it's really challenging, right? Um, how do we bring together all these, the timing of responsiveness of all these different organisms to the, to the performance of that holobiont in a quantitative way? want to dig into this idea of, you know, shifts in the holobiont community structure as responses to climate change. And, and maybe let's just think about um, a couple of things. So if you imagine a whole community of sort of, you know, commensal or symbiotic organisms living together, and they as a community are responding to, to new stresses, what what could be the responses of the community, like, you know, substitution of different members? And then how, how does that affect things like the thermal tolerance of the corals themselves. Yeah, I'll go back to sort of a classic example um, of as we were learning about the different um, algal symbionts or the dinoflagellates of the adaptive bleaching hypothesis. And so essentially, um, Budemeyer and Fatin put before this adaptive bleaching hypothesis that's saying that the holobiont bleaches and the the potential outcome from that is to take in a new symbiont to make your, the holobiont um, more well adapted to the low, to the current conditions or the current stressors, right? So this could happen in at least two ways um, for the algal symbionts. You can, you can have switching or shuffling. And so switching would be um, bleaching out your complement and taking new things in from the environment. And shuffling would be um, bleaching out, you already have some mix inside and then there's differential um, repopulation and you've shuffled one ty- one dominant type for a different dominant type. And this has been since I think 93 or something like that, this has been an ongoing area of research of of when is this occurring under what kinds of stressors under which species of corals i think the the predominance of evidence is for shuffling um so if you have cryptic types or if you have codominance um, you tend to see shuffling and for example this is where we see that cd trade-off or that cladocopium duristinium trade-off i was talking about right and we see this um for example in hawaii we can have two corals right next to each other they'll both be going through the same bleaching event in 2014, 2015, this one bleaches stark white, this one pales or doesn't bleach, right? And we've seen associated with that, this one's predominantly um, having hosting clay D or duristinium, and this one is predominantly hosting clay C. So there's a connection there between thermal tolerance and the overall bleaching of that organism. And so you could see that through time, you could potentially see a shift in the population or the dominance of uh, the different types being dominant of those symbionts um, if you get successive bleaching events. And, and so is the idea that there might be enough diversity in the the symbionts out there that that's that sort of a reserve, a reservoir that, that, you know, coral populations could draw on as climates change and that that might, you know, provide sort of ongoing 
you know, re- responses to change. Yes, that's been uh, that's been uh, that's been an idea that's positive. There's a um, Berkman's and Op, and I think have a glimmer of hope for coral reefs paper, sort of talking about things like this. And and I would say the the difficulty that we've come upon since thinking about it in this way is that. Um, if you are thinking about switching, you have to have compatible symbionts um, and host, right? And so you can't just have whatever's there in the environment or whatever bleaches out of another coral and necessarily come in and actually be taken up and maintained um, in certain hosts because they have a specificity and they have a winnowing capacity, right? So for example, in Hawaii, Virginia Weiss's group did um, work with um, mushroom corals. So they look, they literally grow up like this cute little mushroom stalk. They break off, they're free living, and they can actually like sort of move themselves very, very slowly around the reef. And they look pretty much like a mushroom top. And with these, they don't have symbionts when they're born. So you can inoculate them with different types of symbionts. And so if you inoculate them, they found if you inoculate them with a a variety of symbionts, um, they'll actually winnow out back to their parental complement through time. Um, So even though they take them up, they don't seem to actually sustain the interaction with them. And so that's, that is a concern is we've seen this at the early stages. They could, they can take up multiple symbionts, but there's less evidence for when they're adults that they can actually switch out, take up novel symbionts and maintain those. Um, and so that would be a limitation for sure to think about that as sort of a ratcheting mechanism of, of enhanced tolerance that would be sustained through time. So, so uh, this idea of vertical versus horizontal transmission is super interesting, and it seems like it has a lot of implications for, uh, you know, whether we consider this to be an evolutionary process, for example. So, so are, are most of these things vertically transmitted or most of them horizontally or a mix of both? Um, I would say it's a mix of both and I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. Um, and I've worked in places where it tends to be, (laughs) it tends to be vertical, but I think there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of horizontal, especially in the GBR, especially with a cropper species, which dominate a lot of reefs. Um, and so, but, but yeah, I mean, there's huge implications there for your early life survivorship, right? You, you both have a potential, um, sort of doggy bag from, from your parents, right? That you're carrying along of additional energy, but you also then are more susceptible to, to reactive oxygen species damage if you're floating in the water column near the surface, um, as a larva containing those symbionts. I see. So it's just dangerous to have them along for the ride potentially. Yeah. There's, there's pros and cons, um, there to being vertical or, or horizontal, but, but in theory, energetically, you have a boost, potential boost right away before you're actually settled and before you're actually using your heterotrophic um, feeding approach. Holly, I've got to ask you, uh, this adaptive bleaching hypothesis is such a cool thing to me and totally novel. So let me let me revel in my naivety. Um, do we have any historical sort of, uh, you know, ancient evidence to support it? And it? Because it just stands out to me that if this is adaptive, it, it seems not to really work all that well. Or, or does it? I mean, we, we still hear, I mean, bleaching events are so incredibly profound. It's not a very good adaptation, or is it not all that sensible to talk about an adaptation because the climate now is so dramatically different or changing so rapidly that that's atypical to, you know, the evolutionary past of corals? Yeah, um, I don't think I have any exact events in the evolutionary past to point towards, but I would say that we can think about it in, as sort of more maybe like a a crutch. And so the adaptation would be to be a generalist, to be able to, to interact with multiple symbionts and in a way that you have a base of, of incoming carbon, right? Um, to be a generalist and that gets you through that stress event, right? But we also find that if you don't get through that, that stress event, um, those corals that are generalists are actually weedy and they tend to come back really quickly. So they have high reproduction and come back really quickly. And so I think that, that there are sort of multiple things coming in here. There's, you know, 
you could be plastic and a generalist and that would be the adaptation. Um, and then there's the disconnect of the lifespan of the symbiont and the host of the generation times and lifespan, right? So it's this, it comes back to this also question of what is the unit of selection on a coral reef in a coral? Is it the holobiont? Is it the host? What is that unit of selection? And so I think that's why also evolutionarily it is less clear to point to a specific thing, um, would be my thinking. Okay. It, it's, it's incredibly complicated. I mean, that's, that's really cool. The disparity in rates of evolution, the players in these systems, I'm just becoming incredibly fascinated by that, but it's mind blowing. I thought it was tough. This makes it almost intractable, <laughs> but Hey, that's, that's keeps us in, uh, in business, I guess. Job security. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to follow up on something that Marty just said. I mean, in, in these, Systems that involve lots of interacting partners that have very different time scales over which they live and time scales over which they evolve. Um, that just seems really hard to parse out, right? Because if if we have corals evolving, but they also have lots of microbes that are living very fast and you know presumably have much higher effective population sizes and generate much more genetic diversity over time, they presumably are, are evolving much faster. So you have multiple partners, but different evolutionary speeds. How, how does that play out at the holobiont level? I mean, I think that's still what we don't know, right? And so in that particular paper in JEB, that's that's what I was trying to point at, right, is that we need to think about these, we need to think about acclimatization and adaptation in a more integrative way, um, when we, especially when we have these situations of multiple rates, right? Because it could be, it's really adaptation for the microbial community, right? Because they have rapid generation times, they're changing through time. But what they might be doing is generating a me metabolic signal that's triggering the host in some way. That host is growing. It's the same host throughout that entire time, even though the microbial community is, is evolving, right? But the signal they're sensing from that microbial community in terms of the metabolite might be sensed as an external environmental signal, essentially, right? Or an internal environmental signal from, from the metabolism of that community. And so then the host is responding in terms of acclimatization to that signal, right? It's acclimatizing to that signal. Um, and then a variety of things can occur with that interaction that then is a pressure on the microbial community, which then, you know, basically is a feedback again to the host community. And, and so that's where this interplay between the, the, the symbiome and sort of the gene expression regulation and actual selection is all connected in a variety of really, really complex ways that makes it difficult to evolutionarily say, you know, this will be the outcome or this is that we have this confidence that this will be the outcome because those these players are moving really, really quickly and they're signaling, you know, this player, which is moving really, really slowly, but there's the intersection of acclimatization adaptation or epigenetics and genetics. And so that's what I was pointing out. That, that feels... Yeah, it feels like one of the more complicated biological problems that I've heard about. I mean, kudos to you for <laughs> approaching this. <laughs> um, okay, I got to go back to adaptive bleaching. I just love this idea. Indulge me one more, one more question, Holly. Why this is the the adaptive bleaching episode? I, I can't let it go. Why um why don't corals tend to take up the most thermally tolerant microbes all the time? I mean, why should there have to be a shift? Is there something that those thermally tolerant microbes are not good at? that they sort of only do that under bad circumstances? Yeah, I mean, I think basically there's going to be trade-offs. So for example, when you get that thermal tolerance that we've seen from a variety of studies, there's differences in the carbon generated and translocated and therefore the host growth, right? So you have this trade-off where you're surviving. It's that crutch through that time. But then after that, it's not necessarily as beneficial. And we don't know exactly what that crosstalk mechanism is, right? So there could be some clear signal back and forth internally um, that's that's 
detected by the host, um, or it could be opportunistic in that they still do have um, some complement of, of a cryptic type of that clade C, and then that clade C can grow faster and, re and outpopulate, outcompete the, the clade D that's in there. So I think there's multiple things at play. There's, there's potentially like some host control we don't exactly know yet because it can sense the carbon translocation and the interaction with the symbiont, or there's always these vying competitive populations in there and it's going to bring back one up under normal ambient conditions where it's going to bring back up the thermal tolerant under the thermally stressful conditions. We want to spend some time on human-assisted evolution. Um, it's such an incredibly... I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk about, so I'm not going to steal your thunder about it. But let's um, let's get there by addressing something that we've kind of danced around so far. And I think that's where how much and in what form variation shows up in these populations. And in, in the uh, JEB paper that, that um, we're sort of talking about here, you spend a bunch of time talking about molecular epigenetic variation. Um, in fact, you invoke one thing, you, you make one statement that I found really cool. Um, you say inherited gene regulation capacity. So that is kind of both, right? You're talking about a genetic something that is the underpinnings for epigenetic modification. So tell us something about that and tell us something about, you know, what we know about the role of epigenetic variation or what you expect about epigenetic variation in the corals. Yeah. And so I can't, I can't take all the credit for that. So that's basically coming from this Adrian Kalchhauser paper and I think Trends in Ecology and Evolutionary Trends Journal. I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but basically I'll start back, um, by saying that we are at we're still um, scratching the surface for what we understand about epigenetic mechanisms in in most non-model systems and in particular in marine invertebrates and in particular in corals right so we have a handful of papers so far that show primarily things like dna methylation which is the sort of a flag planted on the dna that results in a, in a different outcome in gene expression or function um, that we can see that this is inducible and changeable when exposed to a variety of different environmental changes or stressors, um, and that there's a correlation between um, DNA methylation sort of percent or level and gene expression. So, that, so it does seem to have a role of gene expression regulation like it does in, in the vertebrate system. Um, so that's where we, that's where we know um, the most, but I think in, in thinking that's what we know the most and that's the most tractable system to, to investigate first, we've embarked on this. And I think I think we've embarked on this with the assumption often that when we think about these these epigenetic signals and potential for these epigenetic signals to be transmitted across generations, that we're assuming that there's going to be a mark or a suite of marks that are planted and sort of stay there and have some stability. And that's how we would recognize them. As Mark Potashny was saying in, in, in counter to this, that really it should be it should be a feedback loop. It's a gene expression regulation feedback loop, right? So you shouldn't have rationale to maintain something constantly if that's a... Right. It's of less use if it's a kind of a fixed mark for a long period of time, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so and so that's where this sort of idea that, that you're mentioning is coming from after um, thinking about also this Adrian Kulthauser paper, um, where basically why wouldn't it be a cast... Why couldn't it be a cascade of different mechanisms, right? We know that these epigenetic me mechanisms are interrelated, right? That that there are, uh, are modifiers in certain states of some that talk, talk to others, for example, DNA methylation and histone modification and, and um, packaging of the DNA, right? And so, so 
I think we're really going into this um, in corals, assuming that we should see a DNA methylation on gene, you know, mark on gene X, and we should see that in the parent, and we should see that in the sperm, and we should see that in the offspring, and we should see that in the offspring X months later. And that idea of inherited gene um, gene regulation or gene expression regulation that I was talking about in there is really the idea that that it's not likely that that player will always stay there, right? That's part of a cascade. It's probably going to trigger something that moves on to trigger something else and set up this state, right? This state of regulation that's inherited. So it's not truly quote unquote genetically inherited, but it's set up the epigenetic mark such that you inherit a regulation state of front-loaded genes, for example, that make you more thermally primed. Um, and so... Yes, it all it all is related to genetics because you have to have the epigenetic machinery in the genome to be able to do the you know be able to do any epigenetic regulation. But that particular portion, I'm talking about the fact that you could have a state that's there, and the state could be from a variety of of intersecting marks. And so we shouldn't be too have too much tunnel vision to just say I expect D DNA methylation, heat shock, protein seventy, in a thermally stressful environment on these six CPGs and that should be, you know, propagated through 10 generations, right? And I think that that's an easy thing to do and say, why aren't there persistent, persistently differentially methylated genes across all these generations when really that's, I mean, biology is always way more complex than we want it to be, right? Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, and you're making the argument in the first place that plasticity has something to do with this. So if you don't have the lability, then that part of it doesn't come into play. Um, this, this is fascinating. I mean, I, I don't want to be too indulgent. My lab works on this a bunch. I have a graduate student um, defending her dissertation on Wednesday, in fact, about something very much like this. And we've called this epigenetic potential. And in, and in fact, what we've done so far is just to count the number of CPG sites, either across the genome and particular areas. But two questions for you. Um, how much do we know about variation among species or among populations in this inherited gene regulation capacity? I would say almost nothing. I mean, I'll, I'll speak for primarily corals and, and, and marine invertebrates. I mean, there's there's sort of, I, I always jokingly call it like the holy grail is to like, you know, actually see evidence of this epigenetic um, inheritance, right? Um, and and it's either because it's not happening or because we're not looking at it with this holistic view that we need to look at it with, right? And so I don't think there's that much evidence in... Um, in corals, we have one paper, we have a handful of papers that show um, physiological effects and carryover effects that suggest there's underlying mechanisms of this quote unquote environmental memory, right? And then we have one paper that's looking at um, parents, uh, sperm, and larvae, I think, that's showing some linkage there. But we really don't have, we don't yet have all those mechanistic steps connecting it to really say this is what that inherited um, gene regulation would look like. Um, and, and then as we start sequencing multiple, the methylomes of multiple species, um, for example, we, we just, um, have a paper we submitted that's looking at two Hawaiian species, one environmentally resistant, one environmentally sensitive, and the methylomes of both of those, and they look pretty different, right? I mean, there's still like, there's, there's, they both have the majority of the CPGs in the gene, the gene related regions, so flanking regions and CDS um, and introns. But um, within that, one has really high percent methylation and one has really low percent methylation. And intriguingly, the low percent methylation um, is associated with the environmentally sensitive one. And we've just sequenced four or five more species methylomes, and that seems to be holding out these, these thick-tissued, environmentally resistant corals are tending to have higher percent methylation on average, um, in CPGs anyways, um, than these others. And so I think we're now just getting to the point where we can start to say, okay, you know, my, my sort of pet hypotheses are like the thick-tissued corals have a variety of other 
other primary um, response mechanisms. And so they may not need to call on this particular response mechanism, or they might not be sensing it in the same way because their tissues are different, their cells are re receiving different signals, et cetera, right? And so we now have a couple hundred samples from, from two different temperature treatments and two different um, pH treatments over time from these two species, and we can actually do this comparison. But it's the, the big data, right? The wealth of big data is, is overwhelming. And so it, it goes back to this point I was making earlier of the holobiont quantitative integration, right? I mean, this is just one point part of it, just the epigenetics of the host, right? Yeah. What about the rest of them? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think we're still on the, we're still again, scratching the surface of, of our knowledge, but I think there's intriguing patterns arising, but but to not disconnect any of these sort of mechanisms of acclimatization adaptation because they are intimately interconnected by the fact that, you know, like I said, the the machinery has to be in the genome for this to happen. Um, but there's going to be dynamism in, in when this is regulated and how this is regulated. Let's try to get to the genetic, the other sorts of genetic variation, because we, we want to sort of ground this in the um, human assisted evolution ideas. Um, what do we what do we know on the on the genetic level? Is there are there any indications now that uh, populations or species are clearly threatened by low genetic diversity of various forms? Or is, is there something more complicated than that? I would say the Caribbean is a good example of this, honestly. I would say we have lower genetic diversity and we have really low recruitment success in the Caribbean. And so I think that those two things are going to keep negatively self, you know, reinforcing each other to to conti continue having sort of a bottleneck or reduced genetic diversity and re reduced recovery from um, degraded reefs. So, so why is genetic variation low in the Caribbean as opposed to other places? Well, at least I should say at least species diversity is a lot lower. So species diversity is a lot lower. And then um, in the in the dominant taxa there, um, these massive, massive sort of mounding corals, um, Orbicella species, there's an Orbicella species complex, a lot of those don't recruit a lot and and they undergo um, fission and fusion. So basically there's a lot of sort of asexual propagation of new um, small, yes, smaller colonies. And so that particular species has that lifestyle, whether that's always been like that or if that's, you know, a result of human influences and climate change, et cetera. Um, I'm not exactly sure. And then also in the other dominant species there, those Acropora, Staghorn and Elkhorn um, corals that, that succumb to... Um, a lot of disease and destruction. Um, we're sort of rebuilding those populations. And then in, in new restoration efforts, we have limited numbers of genotypes. So in these areas where we're going to start mixing assisted evolution with natural populations, that's also something to think about um, is what is our genetic diversity? How much genetic diversity do we need on the reef? Do we care that we have, you know, reefs that are genetically and have genetic diversity and biodiversity or do we care that we have reefs that have three-dimensional structure that provide the goods and services that humans need to survive right what what point are we at in those kinds of decisions seems like a common and important problem across much of conservation biology right yeah. uh, you know not not just in the coral world okay well let's um we keep tossing out this phrase human assisted evolution so let let's dig into this so this i as i understand it came from uh 2015 paper in PNAS. You were a co-author on that. And 
it's got a ton of attention, right? Because it just it seems outrageous and super interesting. So um, maybe tell us what what is this idea of human assisted evolution of corals? Yeah, I mean, I think it seems it seemed like a lightning rod then, and, and much less so now, right? I, I think I think and that it really came about as because of the urgency of the state of the reefs, right? Like the urgency of the of the climate change problem, the urgency coming from the threats and degradation of reefs that we're seeing worldwide, even in places that they're not you know, closely connected to humans in throughout the Indo-Pacific and in, in isolated places, right? So the idea is basically how do we harness the biological toolkit that these corals have in a in a natural way to facilitate acclimatization and adaptation. And that sort of we posited as as four main things. Um, one is selective breeding of, of high-performing genotypes. Um, and we know that that's going to have trade-offs associated with it, but potentially thermal high, selective breeding for thermal tolerance. And that selective breeding is analogous to agricultural systems, aquacultural systems, right? And so this has been done for a long time, and it's only the natural genetic material. So the idea is to bring a bunch of them into the lab, test something about their phenotypes like thermal tolerance, find the ones that are the most resistant, then breed large numbers of those and release them back into the wild. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And um, then we had um, two sort of areas focused on the symbionts. One is inoculating with a lot, inoculating corals with a variety of different symbiont types, um, given that, you know, our existing discussion uh, about the variety of types that are out there and their, and their performance characteristics and evolving those symbionts. So basically, like we talked about, they have rapid generation time. And so um, potentially evolving those symbionts for heat tolerance and then re-inoculating corals with that. And Madeline Van Oppen's lab has done a variety of studies on that and showing you can gain holobiont performance and thermal tolerance um, with with um, evolved uh, symbionts. And then the other area is sort of um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? These epigenetics and acclimatization. So how much does your prior environmental history matter and influence your response to subsequent stressors? So can you sort of put them, can you transplant them to a, a different location, maybe a ex- more extreme environment, and um, then they gain basically differential gene expression regulation and acclimatize to that environment. And through that, then there's potential to increase um, their thermal tolerance, increase something else, you know, some other feature growth, et cetera. Um, and that, and then also have uh, potential for um, cross-generational or transgenerational acclimatization. So essentially acclimatization or stress training, stress training your corals. So six years on, which one of those is mo- has been most promising so far, or are you most of an advocate for Oh, um, I think that's a that's a complex question, and I think they're not. <laughs> hey, we've been doing that so far. You can you can lean into that one. That's right? fine. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the rest of the conversation's been so simple. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's really hard to say which of those is promising. I think and, and which I would advocate for. I think I'm I didn't come into this, and nor do I did I stay in in this sort of field to say like we need to do this this one thing or. Or this is all for the application. I think what it, critically what we're doing is we're building our biological understanding, our basic biological understanding of the mechanisms these organisms have to respond to environmental change, so that so that we know or have a better understanding, a scientifically informed um, viewpoint when we need to make decisions about um, what we should be doing. And I think that's gonna that's gonna be driven by a variety of different things. Like for example. Uh, we had a follow-up paper to that in global change biology, particularly looking at restoration. We had a we had a decision tree there that's asking, you know, what are the characteristics of the reef, right? If the reef is already degraded and that reef is going to maintain its degraded, it's going to maintain its its pollutants and its human impact, then how much focus or which of those processes would we focus on at that reef, right? So, for example, 
if we had a reef that was that was hit by a hurricane but otherwise has good conditions then and and we had genetic diversity that was similar from from surrounding regions then it's very little human intervention to basically just bring the larvae there that had the same genetic diversity that were there before and just basically seed the reef right and that's low on the scale of human intervention and that keeps your three-dimensional structure potentially in your goods and services right and then on the other end of the spectrum is like you know are you transplanting in tons of things are they going to survive there how much loss are you are you going to have or cost are you going to have because of that and should you not choose that right so i think that's really a complex decision tree that's the intersection between our biological understanding the goals um for that particular reef and so critically is is um we need to have discussions with stakeholders from those particular locations and regions because the local scientists and the local stakeholders are the ones that really need to be making those decisions and 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 from my perspective what i'm hoping that we're contributing to is increasing our understanding to make scientifically informed decisions right yeah it makes sense that's a political answer to that i didn't i didn't say <laughs> that that, to- that totally makes sense and and the other dimension of political would be the one that often would be the most attractive is the cheapest one. So which one is the easiest to do and the cheapest to make happen? Is it is it even possible to say? Again, that's I mean, again, that's really complex. There's been some papers saying the cost of uh, quantifying the cost of like rescuing corals of um, uh, corals of opportunity. So a boat strikes or something else happens and you have corals that were broken off. You take those fragments of opportunity and you put them in a place that they need to go. So basically that's your diver time and the supplies you need to do that. Um, But that particular paper was showing is just not feasible to scale up to the scale that one might actually need to to do that. Um, and so I think that, again, that's really going to be, it's really going to depend on the extent of the intervention that one needs to do, or one would be considering in the extent of the region you're trying to cover, et cetera, for, for the cost, scalability, feasibility, et cetera. So, so we're not that many years into this program, but what's your sense for how it's going? So is it, is it working? Um, I think it's definitely working in the scientific terms and in, in our understanding, at least of these, these multiple topics that we've talked about in as positive in, in original assisted evolution. And it's expanded. I, I would say I sort of analogize it to, you know, we threw in the rock and the ripples are now moving forward um, in the pond and that's gaining traction in a variety of areas, right? We, it's expanded to the, the more aggressive side of, you know, CRISPR and synthetic biology, et cetera, to really understand that. That's not going on to reefs yet, but basically there's science happening in that area. There's a DARPA project out right now. There's a call for proposals for a DARPA project called Refence, which is essentially how do you build a biological structure with enhanced thermal tolerance, et cetera. I mean, asking for all these things we would love to have, but I, I don't see how they are feasible on that timeline, but there's money pouring in to, to target those kinds of questions and approaches. You, you didn't quite say it, but it sounds like from you know, that last minute of, of what you said that some groups are trying to make attempts to go in and edit genomes directly to enhance thermal tolerance and then possibly release those into the wild. I would say not yet release them into the wild, but at least understand. So basically do the, the mechanistic understanding of what particular genes are doing and how they would give us enhanced thermal tolerance or growth or not. Yeah, yeah. So, so if I put myself in the mind of a, a skeptic, and not, not that I am, but if, if I just... You know, think think about the biological complexities of trying to do something like this. Um, it seems like one problem would be, you know, if you're if you're say bringing corals in and selecting on thermal phenotypes, you remove those corals from all of the complexity of their interactions with everything else on the reef, and you know maybe those just completely dominate what whatever is important. So so is there a risk of of 
you know, just, just not getting it right by bringing them into the lab and selecting on one or just a few phenotypes. Yes, I totally agree. I think there is there is a risk with that. I think people, there, there are a variety of people doing it in a way that minimizes that to try to maximize environmental variability. And uh, we've done some work with reciprocal transplants. So you're just, you're keeping that same kind of complexity. It's in the natural environment, but you just transplant them to multiple locations and bring them in for stress tests, um, certain fragments. The beauty of corals, theoretically, is that they're all like clones, right? So you can chop off tons and tons of pieces and you have the same clone. Recently, it's been discovered there's a lot of chimerism and mosaicism, so it's probably not perfect. But ignoring that for now, um, we can do a lot of these things where, you know, we put 10 fragments of this genotype here, 10 fragments of this genotype there, and we can we can have a better, more environmentally relevant answer to what you're just addressing. Um, but I do think uh, on the flip side, yes, there's there's plenty of plenty of ways to get things wrong because if you're targeting, you know, a few things or one thing, right, there's there's definitely going to be trade-offs with that. And I, I should know an example from agriculture at, at, you know, at this point because I'm sure there's those examples, right, where you're you're aiming to have the pig with the most muscle and you get the pig with the most fat instead, right? Like I'm sure there are these examples where you just completely get it wrong. And I think we would be naive to ignore to ignore that and to try to play God with the system. And I think that's why I'm much more of an advocate of taking all these approaches in in the scientific framework, right? And not just in the totally, um, let's try all the things in the field now, right? But I do acknowledge, I do acknowledge there's this tension between what happens with a lab organism versus what happens with a, a fe- an organism in the field. And that's going to really matter. One more question in this space. The, the last uh what is it, the last mechanism that you mentioned, this, the epigenetics ones. When we were talking about DNA methylation and molecular epigenetics earlier, you alluded to evidence that there's sort of these enduring effects. Something happens in a generation and that's passed on to future generations. And I, I think that's kind of what you're talking about here. But can you tie that up for me? I mean, have the thermal sort of tolerance or, or exposure to warmer temperatures, has that happened? And then the capacity to tolerate be passed on across generations so you know epigenetic effects in the old sense we don't know that it's dna methylation or what it might be but these are enduring effects that have become heritable yeah so so the the most classic example of this well just intragenerational is um barbara brown who is my my academic grandmother um she and her work is was focused on is focused on coral acclimatization and she had this classic work in late 90s, early 2000s that, that saw in Thailand, there were these massive corals and they were intertidal corals, so they would sometimes be exposed to the air. And during this period where, the, where there was fluctuations in tide, the sun was coming from a certain, it was a certain season, right? So the sun was coming from a certain side and hitting primarily one face of the coral more than the other. That face bleached. And then during the next season where there was actually um, not as ex- much extreme tides, the sun was overhead. Um, basically there was a thermal bleaching event and only the opposite side bleached. So that's probably one of the earliest classic examples of the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Of like, um, we, we see that memory, right? That memory and that they followed that up and there's been sort of decadal memory and, and their freezer melted down. So they were going to have samples for epigenetics, but they've lost that, which is like a huge um, sadness, right? But, but then there's, um, there are a handful of studies um, now in brooding corals where we would expect there to be the most potential for cross-generational climatization and inheritance of, of, 
the state, right? Um, because they're they're brooded within the parental polyp, um, and there's a direct connection there between the parental experience and the offspring experience, and that offspring is likely to settle very close because it's a direct developer and will settle more quickly than a than a broadcast spawner. And so there's now a handful of studies looking at the effects of temperature, ocean acidification, and feeding, where we can see. Um, a benefit of the parents being preconditioned to these conditions and faster growth and greater survivorship and settlement in their in their offspring. So we're seeing these kinds of these kinds of studies growing. It's just that they're they're so difficult in corals, right? Because the fastest coral getting back to sexual maturity to get to an F two generation, right, is then. 18 months, and that's an optimal condition. So the, there's going to be a paper out on this so that they've run in the sea simulator in Ames, which is like one of the most advanced places in the world for, for, for coral experiments, where they've been able to, I think they're at F2 or F3 over about six years. Um, but these, again, are potentially asexually propagated as well. Those larvae can pop out as asexual propagules, not necessarily sexual propagules. So there's, again, a bunch of complexity associated with that, but but that will be really informative because that will be the longest. So nobody wants to do this for their PhD because it's, <laughs> it takes a really long time, right? So this this is long term thinking, and I think that's that's another part of the complexity right now of really thinking about refutures is that if we're looking at this intersection between plasticity and evolution, these need to be really long-term projects. And so there needs to be recognition of that from funding bodies that these are not just answers we're going to get in a three-year project, even a five-year project, right? And that's that's the difficulty. And, and so what other models could we potentially use to be able to address some of these same kind of mechanisms? And then what, you know, where could we possibly get funds to do 10-year 20-year studies, right? Analogous to the LTER, long-term ecological research sites, right? But an evolutionary framework. Speaking of long-term, I want to ask uh, just about what you view the future of the world's coral reefs to be. Um, You know, we hear a lot of gloom and doom in the media. Um, It's not every day that I actually get to ask a real coral biologist about what what she thinks. Um, So are you optimistic or or pessimistic about what's going to happen? Um, I'm, I'm definitely optimistic. Um, and I was, I was um, talking to David uh, Baker from Oregon yesterday, the day before, and he's writing a book about coral biology from hope to despair, I think is the title, right? And I think that that, that encapsulates it well, right? You hits, hits this question exactly, right? right? You fluctuate between those two, because you like, I was living in Hawaii in 2014, 2015. And I literally was living on the ocean watching the reef bleach in front of me, like realizing the future is now, right? And this is not just something in papers that I'm reading, something that's predicted in IPCC reports, this is something that's occurring now and having massive, massive impacts on the reef and implications for humans, right? And so in that sense, I think it's ramped up the urgency of this issue um, and and the focus on all these different uh, mechanisms we're talking about for me has has made me really, really hopeful, right? Because we can see that that biology, life finds a way and biology finds a way. And so I think that reefs will look different in the future, right? We might have a, a set of, of corals that look different morphologically, that have, you know, that are more, the more environmentally resistant corals. The, the reef goods and services will be slightly shifted or shifted in some ways we don't know yet. But I think there will be reefs, but the reefs will definitely look different. And I think what we don't have a good handle on is like, how much degradation will that be? How much change will that be from the goods and services they provide now, which are valued on the order of hundreds of billions of dollars, right? And that's not something to blink at, especially when you're the person living on the reef, fishing for your family, etc. So just a couple more questions, Holly, if you um, if you can 
take art anymore. I know it's hard. It's you know, hard. About an hour, I start to get worn out. <laughs> uh, tell us about Ruth Gates. So she died in October 2018 at just um, 56, but you know was a huge influence in everything we've been talking about. I never had the fortune of meeting her, but I know you know her quite well. So so tell us about her. Yeah. So. I first met her um, over the phone when I was an undergraduate looking at grad school, and it was when she was taking her first students, and I will always remember talking on my rotary dial phone with the curly cord, right, hanging up in the toxicology lab I was working in and listening to her British accent over the phone. And I met her, I met her then shortly after there, I went and interviewed um, for grad school in Hawaii, um, and, I, and I interviewed both with Pete Edmonds and Ruth Gates, and they were contemporaries in Jamaica doing their degrees together um, in the 80s and 90s and um, didn't, didn't get in with either of them at that point, but knew, knew of both of them at that point and then took a year, took a year, worked at the EPA and then started my master's with Pete Edmonds. And then um, because they were such good friends, um, had had a, you know, more interactions with her at that point. And the goal was to work with her for my PhD following that. And she was at my, my master's defense. And then I moved out there a few months after that, um, in 2008 and, and worked with her from 2008 to 2016, which was 2008 to 12, my PhD and 12 to 16, a smashed together a couple of postdocs, um, which I stayed there for. So, yeah. So, and, and, um, it, I think it's the, they they probably won't appreciate me saying this, but I'm sort of like the the strange academic child of both of them, right? Of like the, um, you know the the real like detail oriented um, studies and physiology of Pete Edmonds, and then the sort of more, hopefully more trained in the in the thought of visionary thinking that she was really coming from, and not that Pete doesn't have that, but they had both had additional strengths in in those areas, um, and so. It was a really dynamic time to work with her. Her lab was was growing. It was really postdoc heavy. Um, and she impacted me across my entire formative years, right? Both sort of in my life and in, in my career. Um, and in really positive ways, I think, really being focused on the science and the mission of the science and being mission driven and not ego driven. And I think this is counter to a lot of a lot of what happens in academia. And and I I enjoy academia, but I, I sort of really am unhappy with the structure of academic science um, in in how it's structured now in terms of the, the reward mechanisms for academic science are really sort of anti-science and anti-diversity and, and a variety of things, right? So we have this tension there that, that sort of pushes you to be the ego and to be the person and to get the metrics and to get the dollars because that's what the system is based on. But really that is not necessarily that helpful besides having the money to like actually do the science and move the science forward, right? And so in training with her, it was really about, you know, how do we move the science forward? How do we move the mission forward? And, and I remember distinctly being there at a time where there was some contention in the field in certain areas. And, 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 she, and she was always saying, you know, it's not about this camp or that camp or this particular idea or that particular idea, like holding fast to those things. It's about what the science says and following what the science says and not just holding onto an idea for the sake of an idea um, or, you know, and just like following that. And I think those sorts of things um, were really impressed upon me. And then, and then, you know, like I said, coming from the, the, the training of like all this like very detailed physiology up to her big thinking, you know, we would go into, we would go into meetings and it wouldn't be like, okay, show me this graph, show me this stat, show me this thing, show me this table. It would be like, what does this all mean? Why are you doing this? What does this mean for reefs? You know, like this, this big picture um, thinking that really is outside she had a lot of visionary and outside the box you know ideas and and focus and she wasn't afraid of sort of the system or the community um in terms of t 
talking about those ideas. And that's another thing that, that was, you know, that really was impressed upon me in my time there is that I can often remember her saying, I don't know the answer to that. And to look at somebody who's your advisor and who's, who's, who's a big name in the field to say, I don't know the answer is hugely normalizing and helpful, right? And is really important to do. And I think her, her doing that is, was hugely supportive, right, of, of my thought about how science works and what you can say and what you can't say. And so, and so I don't know. I mean, I think it was a really fantastic and dynamic time. And I, I, I'm, I'm very, very happy and feel very fortunate and blessed to have trained in that way. And, and to really sort of try to challenge, not just like, you know, to welcome the challenge of the complexity as opposed to holding on to one particular thing or another thing. So I think um, one last question for you, Holly. Uh, what would you like to say? What do we not bring up that's important about corals or epigenetics or, I mean, helicopters, If you anything, <laughs> anything you'd like to say? I mean, I think going back to sort of going back to um, in the vein of thinking about science as a system and going back to thinking about what, what makes me hopeful and thinking about the future. I mean, I think the times that we're in right now are very challenging, right? We see that in, in the natural settings and we see that in the social settings. And I think I'm very hopeful because as I watch my graduate students coming in and coming through, they're asking me questions like not, when do I get to go in the field? But what is, what are, what is your lab doing for justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion? And what is your university doing and your college doing? And that's why I want to be there. You know, that's a large part of why I want to be there working in this in this area. And so I think I'm, I'm, I, I feel like the movement now to to improve in all these areas that academia has was not structured on to begin with. Right. And has generated a lot of, of biases and and sort of kept things in ways that are not helpful for both for the science and definitely biased against a variety of groups. I think I, we see that changing. And in addition to being hopeful, you know, for the world and the environment, I'm hopeful for the society that we're living in, for the scientific system, um, because we're moving in a direction that seems positive and it's going to take a lot of hard conversations and we should have those conversations and, and be open to those conversations. But I think it's, it's really hopeful to see the generations as they're coming up um, wanting to have those difficult conversations and, and prioritizing it around their science. Because I think, especially in coral reef science, um, there's a recent paper that came out within the last week about parachute science, right? It's really easy from, a, you know, not easy to get a grant, but once you have money, it's easy to drop into a country and to do a bunch of science there. You know, we don't have a lot of coral reefs, a ton of coral reefs in the U.S., right? And to leave that country and to state your science from not support local scientists. So. Yes. Right. And so I think just being aware of the, of the ways that we're doing science and what that means, um, I think is really important and something that I'd like to continue the conversation on into the future. Holly, thank you so much. Thank you. That was a fascinating conversation. You tolerated art for that long. Congratulations <laughs> on that front too. Oh, thank you. Well, my favorite thing is to talk science with people. So this was, this was super fun for me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. To support the show, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. And while you're there, be sure to get yourself some swag. The throw pillows are our favorite. Please follow us on social media for the latest Big Biology news. We especially encourage you to join our listener group on Facebook. That's a place where you can discuss the episode with other fans, create memes, and interact with the Big Biology team. 
We have links to the group on our social platforms, or you can simply search for Big Biology Listener Group on Facebook. Please also spread the word about us on Twitter or Instagram, or give us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. On our next episode, we talk to Walter Isaacson, author and professor of American history and values at Tulane. Walter's new book, The Codebreaker, focuses on Jennifer Doudna and her discovery and development of CRISPR, a gene editing technology that could revolutionize medicine. There was like an aha moment. If that's how CRISPR-Cas9 works in a bacteria, it will be easy to reprogram the single-guide RNA and to reconfigure and optimize to work in human cells. And so suddenly a curiosity-driven piece of research becomes a discovery that becomes an invention that becomes a piece of translational medicine. Thanks to Ruth Demery for producing this episode. Ajinkya Dahaki, Dana Baxter, and Jordan Greer manage our social media channels and help produce the podcast. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.